and I want to, um, if I can, lead us into a summer with a different kind of twist. It starts with fairy tales once upon a time in a faraway land. Have you ever heard one of these before? You all have your favorite one. It's Jack and the Beanstalk, it's Cinderella, it's Beauty and the Beast, it's the Wizard of Oz. Is there a fairy tale that you heard as a child that you still remember as an adult? You have 10 seconds, turn to the person next to you and cite it. Don't tell the fairy tale, just give the name if you can go. Some of you can't remember, or some of you just won't play. The tendency uh, is to think that this is children's literature that we put down when we become adults, and it would be easy to think that, except some of the tallest intellects in the history of the world have said opposite this. C.S. Lewis said he liked them more now than when he was a child, and he was 54 when he said it. Chesterton said he left the fairy tales on the floor of his nursery, but has not found a more sensible book written since. The power of fairy tales is not the imagination. It's not what they imagine. It's what they explain. I can tell you that an object or a person must be loved before they are lovable. For love, if it is real, has the power to create, and you'll nod in agreement. Or I can simply tell you the beauty and the beast, and you'll discover it yourself. Only then you'll own it. The power of fairy tales comes from our love of the gospel. Because they follow a pattern or a code that is very close to the code or the structure, the skeleton, if you will, of the gospel. There is almost always a deep human longing, a primal need, a desire that one was born with came from God, and the character has it too. It's good. But there is a villain, an evil, a sinister plan a witch, a magic spell that holds us back. We can't get it. We are overpowered by this force and we are helpless. But (laughs) there is another power. There is a hero. There is a savior. There is another magic spell that comes out of the blue. This could never happen twice. And when it happens, and you hear it or you see it, it brings tears to your eyes. It's the first glimpse of real truth that you've ever seen. And when you hear it or when you see it, this this person or this event, when you discover it, this thing that was always there but hidden from your eyes, the story starts to turn You start to know that everything is going to go well now that this other power is in play because this one is favorably disposed towards you. 
This wants your good, just as the other wanted your end. Does this make sense? If you think about it, that is the structure of the gospel. There is a deep human longing that everyone feels. There's different words for it, but it's there, covered up by activity and accomplishments and pursuits, but it's still there. And once in a while, you touch that deep human need. But there is also a villain. There is a spell. There is a sinister evil that has fallen over all of us. And we are unable to turn things around. But there is news of another person who is favorably disposed towards us. And every now and then he acts. And when he acts, it is always out of the blue. This could never happen twice. And when it happens, you know in a moment there will be a happy ending. Are you still there? Last spring, I sat with staff and I said, where are people now that everyone's coming back together again? The shutdown is over, but it's not over because some of the habits are still with us. And they used words like um, anonymous, unknown, um, rudderless, ashamed, tired, and weary, critical, and exhausted, which was striking because I did not ask them to tell me what was wrong. I simply asked them to tell us what state we were in. It was a neutral question. But immediately I started to hear the language go in that direction. So I said, what do our people need? And they said, we need hope. We need a narrative, a story that is bigger than our little lives. We need something to believe in again, someone to belong to. We need to know who we are and what God wants for us. So we picked up stories in the Old Testament and asked, what if we read these like a fairy tale? What if we looked for the human predicament, the longing, the primal need that is there in the story, and the way that God speaks to that need with new hope? What if we read the Old Testament stories as gospel, not lessons in morality? What if they were good news, not good advice or good theology? How would we do that? Well, we articulated five questions that we would lay over the top of all of these stories. And they go something like this. What is the core human need? What is the human predicament? And where is the good news, that sudden burst of joy that lets you know things are going to be different now? And what does that teach us about the nature or the ways of God? And what can I hope for now that God has done these things 
And what does it mean to believe or to wait with anticipation in the meantime? So for the rest of my time, and I can tell there isn't much, I'm going to tell you a story, two of them. The story of Abraham. Have you heard this one? Are you familiar with it? It's in Genesis chapter 12. But the, the problem is that every time we read it alone, we miss the point. We read it as though all of history started there with the calling of Abraham. But right before it, in Genesis chapter 11, is the story of the Tower of Babel. Have you heard of this? Some of you. And if I'm doing the math right, the failure at Babel and the call of Abraham happened in one person's lifetime. These were not hundreds of years apart. They all happened in the lifetime of Abraham's father. What I'm telling you is, on the day Abraham was called, he was one generation away from the failure at Babel. He knew of it. And the call of Abraham is only understood when you put it in the context of the failure at Babel. You still with me? Now the story, hence the stool. Once upon a time, in a faraway land called Shinar, there was a king named Peleg, whose name means division. He had a dream. He dreamed of bringing the entire world together. He saw us as fractured and separated and tribal. But he thought if he could create one project, one cause, one feat, and get everyone to work on it, why we would be one again. So he went from village to village, shouting at the top of his lungs, come and let us make a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Well, people wouldn't listen to him. So he kept at it. He said, all this time, we've been working on our own little projects. What if we all got along? What if we came together? What if we gave peace a chance? What if we made all lives matter? What if we put our backs into one project and shared our resources and together in that project, why, we would find each other. We would teach the world to sing. There is hope. So that's what he did. One by one, people came. The carpenters and the architects, the artists. And what they built was magnificent. 
We'd never seen anything like it before. They were using bricks instead of stones, and they were using tar instead of mud. They were using steel and bronze, and people hadn't used these things before in their buildings. Before long, it was the talk of the town. They weren't failing. They were succeeding wildly. And then one day, another king heard of it and came to see it. He walked through their cities, and he looked at the tower, now half done, and it worried him. He wasn't afraid that they would be competition, <laughs> for he was not a weak king. There is no competition. He was afraid that what they were building would destroy the mortals themselves. For they had started to take things that he created and put them together into something new, an innovation. It was a new invention. And before long, it was an idol. And they were blind to their loyalties, to the thing they were making with their own hands. He saw human ambition, unholy ambition. He saw the undisciplined pursuit of more, which always tends to follow accomplishments. He saw people throwing their lives, their families, into the work with such slavish labor that they were losing their personalities while they were losing themselves. He thought to himself, what will happen if this continues? The thing they have made will be the thing that they trust. And it will destroy them. So he scattered them. If you think of it, the story of Babel is our story today. It is human beings trying to come together in the name of unity for unity's sake. It is human beings inventing things and soon after worshiping them. It is a culture of hard work and ambition in which heroes are needed so heroes get made. It is a culture of meaningless tropes about peace and reconciliation and justice. And look at us, people. We've been shouting these slogans for more than a year, and it is hard to point to a single law that has changed. We can't find one new pathway for people we were calling for justice. 
Instead, what we've done is found new enemies. Only now they're not people of different color, they're people of different ideologies. People that were once different from us now annoy us. Because we know where they stand on this or on that. So all the while we were crying for unity, we have actually created more dysfunction. So the picture of the human race today is the picture of a man leaving Babel, forlorn, shaken, frustrated that his project has failed. Wondering, what does he do with this longing to be one when he doesn't know how to get along with people? Then one day, the other king had an idea. He would do it differently. He would come to earth and he would find one person, just one, and his family. And he would make that person a promise that was out of this world. But if he could get the person to believe it, he would form a bond with that human being that would grow over time. So they would become alike, in a sense, this king and this mortal. And this mortal would trust this king in the way that the others trusted the tower. And as he did, he would live differently. He would not pull him out of the world. He would leave him in the world, in the very mess that needs fixing. And there, he would empower that man to live differently. And as that person and his family grew, <laughs> they would produce others who are just like them. And those people would live in every nation. So he would unite the world, not by bringing everybody together, but by leaving them apart and forming in each one of them, within their cultures, a loyalty and an allegiance to the king such that by their loyalty to him, they would belong to one another. So the Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, your father's house, and go to a land I will show you. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And whoever blesses you, I'll bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And then you will bless others the way that I've blessed you. So Abram left 
just as the Lord told him. <laughs> and that is when things begin to change. As I say, if you read the call of Abram by itself, you hear only this call to follow God. But if you put it in the backdrop of Babel, you start to see the problem God is trying to solve. And you start to imagine how he might do that. And it allows you to contrast the two cultures. In Babel is the culture of accomplishment and human ambition and ingenuity. Babel is new. It's big. It's expensive. Um, the call of Abraham is small. It's a voice. Nobody heard it except one guy. The first words in Babel are come and build. The first words at Abraham are leave and trust. So in Babel, they're making their name great. But with Abraham, it's God who will make their name great. In Babel, the way to solve the world's problem is with a magnificent feat, a project, a cause that everyone gathers around, a slogan that everyone picks up and repeats. We're in this together. There. But with Abram, the answer to a universal problem is a particular person living in a particular kind of way that is countercultural and yet attractive at the same time. So the way of Babel is fast and overwhelming and significant. When you see it, you're amazed, but the way of Abram is slow and frustrating and insignificant, and you never see it. Your legacy at Babel is a city, a tower, a landmark that says you were here, but your legacy with Abram is, uh, well, let me think. It's a son, and he has a wife, and then you die at a good old age, full of years, and you're gathered to your father. That's not an impressive resume, is it? But don't be discouraged because Babel is also a place of conflict and chaos and competition and sabotage. You understand, it is precisely human ambition that causes all of these things. So all the while, you're building in something great, a tower, 
as a name for yourself, you're creating all of this collateral damage with the personalities around you. There is this concentration of power to a few people. But with Abram, your legacy is, well, you've probably heard of Israel. You might have heard of Isaiah, Jesus, you know him, and they all come after you die. The way of Abram is the way of trust. God utters a promise out of nowhere, and the moment he utters it, You believe it. And even though your belief is inconsistent and it's slow and you fail a thousand times, you know in your soul at the end of the day, God is good for the thing he promised. If God said it, he will do it. And a promise is not a command. You will be a great nation doesn't mean you should be a great nation. You will have a son does not mean go have a son. It means God is going to do what God said he would do. You simply have to walk in obedience and do the thing directly in front of you. And it may take years, maybe even most of your life. But eventually, when God fulfills that promise, everything will change. Well, some of you were waiting for me to get to this sermon. (laughs) If you must have a sermon, here it is. There are some people in the room right now who believe like Abraham, but you're still working like you live in Babel. You have faith in God, but you're still trying to do something as a tower and a legacy to your own name. Every time you get power, things go crazy. And the older you get, the fewer people Sign up to help you because people don't want to work on your tower. There are people in the room who believe like Abraham, but they have Babel's ego. They're competitive. And so someone else's success always feels like a threat to theirs. You have to decide this morning which one you belong to. You cannot serve them both. Your body of work, your name, your reputation, your legacy 
is not your business. It is God's business. Do the thing in front of you. That is enough. And then God will make you great. Some of us need to redefine greatness. And then there are some who believe and live like Abram, but the place where you work feels a lot like Babel. There is confusion and conflict and chaos and strife that always comes with human ambition. And everything inside you right now just wants to leave the place where you were. And by the way, I am not just talking about secular places. This happens to Christian institutions too. Ego is a human problem. Everything in you wants to step away from it and just go, you know what? I don't need this anymore, man. I would do so much better if I was in a place like Abram's, but God will not release you, will he? He keeps calling you to stay, but it's hard for you to stay. And maybe what you're hearing this morning is that you are part of God's solution to the world's chaos. I know it's hard and it's slow and it is terribly frustrating, but there is no other way to change the world than for God to find men and women who stay in their disciplines and dispositions and they live countercultural lives there. And even though the world around you will scorn that, they need you and they know they need you. And they will come back to you someday. But you must be faithful and you must be strong. You must not quit.